I'm Bridget Stomberg. And I'm Lisa Simone, And this is Taxes for the Masses. Today's episode is on some tax legislation that is not likely to pass in 2023. Every year, there are some tax issues that constituents hope or expect Congress to address. Many times, those issues go unaddressed by the end of the calendar year. In today's episode, we discuss R&D expensing and expansion of the child tax credit, two things that many people hoped Congress would address in 2023, but so far, as of late December, has not. Hello, Lisa. Hello, B. I'm really excited about today's topic because to me, it exemplifies in so many ways why we created this podcast to begin with. All right, so you're gonna have to refresh my memory about why we created this podcast to begin with. Uh, It's clearly not to hear ourselves talk out loud because I think we can (laughs) all agree that is absolutely one of the worst things on the planet. It is. um, Okay, so refresher, we started the podcast so that we could stay up to date on tax issues. Yes. I mean, it was purely selfishly motivated. Okay, coming back to me now. Okay, so the two things we're talking about today, I haven't really been keeping a close eye on at all. Um, And so researching this episode is getting me up to speed, which was the whole point to begin with. All right, so before we dive into what Congress, you know, maybe should have been doing this year, are there any New Year's- (laughs) You mean mean they weren't doing their job? (laughs) They were doing things. I don't don't know that it was the right things. I don't know that they have been doing things. Aren't they like the most unproductive Congress ever? I, Isn't that yeah. a real stat? Well, I mean, when you have to spend so much time voting on your speaker, your, yeah. you know. Multiple speakers. Yes. It multiple take, times. It takes time. It takes time. Yeah. Um, so they've been showing up. They've been doing things. Maybe just not the things okay. that, yeah. Um, okay. But question to you, are there any New Year's resolutions or other goals that you did or did not? Account? Like, I just, I want to be fair. I don't want to just say that Congress didn't do what they should have done. Is there anything that you wish you'd done this year that you didn't do? Yeah, I was supposed to start running this year oh, again. Okay. Yeah, that that hasn't happened a single time. So, um, you know, not not so good there. Okay. How about you? Uh, no, I think I'm on track because I, I think I went on record on this podcast as saying my New Year's resolution uh, was to eat more cookies. <laughs> I do remember that. And <laughs> I think I've done a, a pretty good job in that respect. You, so. so you think you've actually eaten more than the prior year? I'm, I'm going to say yes. And okay. I'm going to say yes. And if, if I, if I can expand the construct to desserts, absolutely. And I don't want to win on a technicality, but, um, I, I rediscovered the joy that is a Milano this year. So I've, mm-hmm. I've eaten, a, I've eaten a bag or two mm-hmm. of Milano's this year. So, um, all right. So enough about cookies, although there's never really enough about cookies. No. Uh, what do you want to start with? Do you want to start with R and D or you want to start with the child tax credit? I think we should start with R&D. Okay. All right. So as you wish, let's start at the tippy top. Uh, what is what is R&D? Okay. Yes. So R&D stands for research and development. Some people in the tax world prefer to use R&E. And those people are wrong. I just want to say that. Um, that stands for research and experimentation. And it is the language in the law. Don't so care. So you're calling Congress wrong, which is, I'm, I'm not arguing with you. I'm just pointing out that fact. Okay. Either way, we're talking about the cost that a company incurs as part of its business to innovate, to create new things, to create new products or processes with the whole goal of driving growth through innovation. Um, And as we've discussed on many episodes of this podcast, companies, at least when Congress is feeling generous, Mm. get deductions 
or they get to expense those costs of doing business that you just talked about. So you pay someone an hourly wage, you get a tax deduction for that. You pay rent for an office to locate your business, you get a tax deduction for that. Some people call these write-offs, tax write-offs. David Rose, absolutely. Yes, okay. You purchase inventory, you get a tax deduction for that. So you do something that helps your business, typically you get a tax deduction for that. And until 2022, if a company incurred research and development expenditures, they got a deduction for that. Under what we call full expensing, companies were able to deduct or subtract from taxable income the full amount of any R&D investments made during the year. Easy peasy. Spend 1.5 million on R&D, deduct the 1.5 million, and that deduction gets you a $315,000 tax benefit immediately under the current rate of 21%. And I see no problems with that approach. Yeah, I I don't either. But, you know, even if it ain't broke, uh, Congress might tinker with it anyway and accomplish absolutely nothing. Uh, Yeah, I would- The point of this episode. Exactly. I was going to say, I think that's exactly what they did. They tinkered with it and it's unclear what they accomplished. So in 2017, when Congress passed the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, yes, we are still talking about the TCJA six years later, the bill had to be, quote, revenue neutral so that it could pass through what we call the reconciliation process. So Lisa, can you give us the Schoolhouse Rocks recap on the budget reconciliation process? I mean, I'm loving your reference to Schoolhouse Rock here, but um, I'm just, I'm having trouble remembering how it goes. Can you, can you help me out here? Um, I see what you're trying to get me to do. Uh Uh-huh. And I'm just, I'll do some spoken word. How's that? Uh, How about you do spoken word to music? No. She's, she's laughing silently as she does. It's a, I don't even know the rhythm. It's just, I'm, I'm just a bill sitting, sitting here on Capitol Hill. I'm just a bill. I'm only a bill. That's my inner baritone. All right. So of course we're singing the I'm just a bill song from Schoolhouse Rock. Um, What the song didn't mention is that after the House of Representatives votes on a bill and it goes to the Senate for a vote, a bill usually needs a 60 vote supermajority in order for it to pass. And that wasn't going to work for Republicans in 2017 because they only had 52 seats in the Senate. So they were quite a bit short. And this bill was going to pass on party lines. That was pretty clear. No uh, Democrats were going to join them. Nope. So Congress had to pass the act as a reconciliation bill. And those bills can pass with a simple majority of 51 votes. Um, So that sounds like a free lunch. What's the catch? Yeah, the catch is that reconciliation bills can't increase the federal deficit after a 10-year period. This is the so-called Bird Rule, named after some old white dude named Bird. Gotcha. So because the TCJA was offering a lot of tax cuts, which by definition would reduce tax revenue. Correct. And therefore increase the federal deficit. Even by their own calculations. Congress needed to include some tax changes in the act that would be revenue raisers. And one of the revenue raisers they included relates to, you guessed it, R&D investment. So Congress decided that starting in 2022, companies would no longer be able to fully expense their R&D as they had been for many, many years. Instead, companies now must capitalize, which means put an asset on their balance sheet, their tax balance sheet for these expenditures and amortize them over five years. Um, So we probably need an example here. Yeah, that sounds good. So under current law that requires companies to capitalize and amortize R&D, 
if a company spends 1.5 million of that R&D that we talked about earlier in the current year, and we're gonna keep this like kind of simplified and not go down into the weeds of how this law plays out, okay? So we're gonna assume that they can deduct only a fifth of that amount for each year because they have to amortize it. They have to spread that expense out over the next five years. Yes. So what that means is instead of getting that 1.5 million deduction now and a $315,000 tax benefit now, they can only deduct one fifth of the 1.5 million, so 300,000, and that only gets them a tax benefit each year of $62,000. So the, the trick here is that the total tax benefit is gonna be the same in both scenarios. Right, after five years, you get the full amount, that, that full 1.5 deduction. It's just that you only get a fifth of that every year. And so you just explained in very simple terms why companies are upset about this, because I would rather eat five cookies today than one cookie a day for the next five days, which is essentially what this law is requiring companies to do with their R&D tax benefits. I mean, but if we're being honest, what you really want is to eat five cookies every day. Absolutely. But I digress. All right, so the problem with this approach of spreading things out is that delaying tax deductions disincentivize investments because of both inflation Mm -hmm. and the time value of money. Both of those things diminish the value of those tax benefits the further out you get into the future. And what that means is that it makes it less likely that an R&D project is gonna be sufficiently profitable in expectation to get the green light. So one might imagine that reducing the tax benefits of an R&D investment might stifle economic growth and innovation. Uh, Yeah, it's not a leap to get there. And Congress seems to know this. Okay. Uh, But let's just put some numbers to it. So the Tax Foundation estimates that if we were to return to full R&D expensing soon in the near term, we could increase long run GDP and GNP by about 0.1 percentage points, which equates to $27.5 billion annually using 2022 dollars as a benchmark. Okay. They also estimate that restoring full expensing would increase the wage rate as well by that 0.1 percentage point. And that all seems good. I mean, small maybe, but good. Um, But you got to bear in mind that these benefits come at the cost of foregone tax revenues, right? If we're giving these handouts of lower taxes, then we don't have as much money to run the government. And that's estimated to be about $11 billion annually using dynamic modeling, which accounts for things like changes in taxpayer behavior in response to changes in tax laws. Absolutely. So some net benefits there, but not huge, not saving, not solving the deficit yeah. problem by any stretch. No. Um, another potential problem with this capitalize and amortize approach, uh, which many people have recognized and pointed out, is that other countries tend to be more generous with their R&D tax benefits. Mm. So according to the Tax Foundation, no other developed country requires amortization of R&D expense. And that's problematic because you typically get the tax benefits for where the R&D is done. Mm. So if other countries are going to give more R&D benefits than the U.S., we might actually see some of that innovation leave the U.S. And I don't think that's what anybody wants right now. Yeah. Now, to be fair... Um, It's not like R&D deductions are the only way to save taxes in the U.S. There are other tax incentives in the U.S. for R&D. Yep. Uh, Most notably, we've got research and development tax credits. And um, I say two, I said credits with an S. Um, Our listeners might recall that credits are beneficial because they reduce the amount of tax you owe dollar for dollar. So it's not a deduction Mm -hmm. where you have to multiply it by that 21% rate to figure out your tax benefit. A dollar of credit gives you a dollar of benefit. The bigger point is that R&D incentives still do exist, just not for every firm conducting R&D, 
um, because they may not qualify. Yeah. So there can be some incremental cost, complexity, uncertainty, et cetera, you know, not to mention potential audit risk. Yeah. yeah associated with the R&D credits that aren't really an issue or at least aren't as large of an issue for the deduction. Absolutely. So this might be a provision that is disproportionately disadvantaging smaller businesses, um, businesses that don't want to deal with the complexity of claiming a credit or businesses that might not be aware of or qualify for one of the credits. All right, let's switch gears somewhat dramatically uh, from a business tax deduction that was meant to incentivize innovation to an individual tax credit that has been shown to pull children out of poverty, the expanded child tax credit. Yes, and we did an episode on the child tax credit. This was a long time ago. So let's do a quick recap of the child tax credit. Um, Love it. It has been in existence in some form or fashion since about 1997. And it is intended to reduce the financial hardship of having kids for lower income families. Yes. So to recap that, it is not intended to incentivize having children. No. Um, which is some something that some countries actually do. Yes. But not here. No. So since 2017, the max credit has been $2,000 for each child age 16 and under. Part of the credit is refundable, which is just a fancy way of saying that parents can get cash from the government even if they don't have an income tax liability. Yep. Parents have to have at least $2,500 of income to be eligible for the credit. And parents with income over $400,000 lose $50 of credit for each $1,000 their income is over that limit. So those of you trying to do the mental math, that means parents making over $440,000 are fully phased out. They don't get a dime. Now, the American Rescue Plan, which was passed during the COVID pandemic, made some modifications to the credit. Uh, first, it made the credit fully refundable. Okay. Second, the amount of the credit increased to a maximum of between $3,000 and $3,600 per child, depending on the child's age. That was a big change. Third, there were no income requirements to qualify for the credit. So even if you didn't have any mm. earned income, you could get the credit. Okay. And finally, taxpayers had the option to actually get paid during the year. And this was a biggie. And the goal was to get the money into the hands of households more immediately and not make them wait to file their tax return in April to get all of this cash at once. Yeah, and by many, many, many accounts, these changes were effective. According to the Brookings Institute, which cites US Census data, Child poverty, which we can acknowledge, there's a there's a line that we draw where a kid is, you know, quote unquote, in poverty versus right. not, and yes. that's an arbitrary line. It is, but we got to draw the line somewhere. And uh, using the the current line, child poverty fell to its lowest level ever in 2021 to only 5.2 percent yep. in the U.S. And the census data show that children from all racial and ethnic minority groups experienced lower rates of poverty as a result of the American Rescue Plan's expansion to this child tax credit. And there's actually some academic research by people we know, which is always fun. It is fun. So Lori et al., uh, it's a group of four researchers from UC Irvine, they use pretty cool banking data and find that these child tax credit recipients increase their spending on necessities, Mm. like groceries, education, and healthcare. Mm Mm-hmm. They also pay off debt and incur fewer overdraft fees, which are also good things. All good things indeed, yes. Unfortunately, these provisions expired in 2021. 
And what's more, the child tax credit provisions from the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act are set to expire in 2025. At that point, we're supposed to revert back to the old child tax credit rules. And, you know, these rules are not not as generous. They are not. Um, So if we don't do anything, if Congress doesn't act at all, then after 2025, the maximum credit is going to be cut in half. It's going to go down to only $1,000 per child age 16 and under. And the credit's going to phase in at incomes over $3,000. So you're going to have to earn even more as working parents to get the credit at all. Mm-hmm. It's also going to start to phase out much more quickly once a parent's income exceeds $110,000 versus the $400,000 where we are now. So that's a pretty big difference. Mm-hmm. So why did Congress not act to retain, or they haven't acted so far, uh, to retain the favorable provisions of the American Rescue Plan's version of the child tax credit that pulled an estimated 2.9 million children out of poverty. Oh, yeah, that's a lot of people. It is. Uh, so why aren't we doing this? Well, I mean, for one reason, it's expensive. So, I mean, yeah. yeah, spoiler alert, it's expensive to feed and clothe children. You heard that first here. Right? I, yeah, this is my par- hot parenting take for the, <laughs> yes. for the month of December. Kids are expensive. Um, the... Current iteration of the child tax credit costs an estimated $120 billion annually. And the expanded credit under the American Rescue Plan costs almost double that, $220 billion. In contrast, the provisions set to kick back in after 2025 are going to reduce that cost to about $62 billion annually. And let's just face it, we have a budget problem. We do. Um, but th- with this, it's actually about more than just the cost. Okay. So- As we have been running through this, you'll notice that there are many, many nuances to this credit, right? How much is it? What's the maximum amount? What's the income threshold? What's the phase out amount? So there are many dials that can be turned in designing this credit. And um, unfortunately, getting our lawmakers to all agree on what all those dials should Mm. be set to is, Mm -hmm. what's what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Impossible. Yeah, I think that that is the appropriate term. Yes, Mm mm-hmm. There are at least four proposals related to the child tax credit in existence, and they all vary quite a bit in terms of the maximum amounts, the phase-ins, all the things, all the dials that you were just talking about. For example, Senator Mitt Romney is proposing a $4,200 maximum credit for children under six, which is generous, but the credit wouldn't phase in fully until a family earns at least $10,000. Ah. A family earning only 5,000 would receive only 50% of the maximum credit. Got it. Um, Then we've got a proposal by the Brookings Institution's Hamilton Project that would retain the maximum credit of $3,600 for children under six Hmm. and begin to phase out for incomes over 110,000. So they've got a lower phase out than Mitt Romney's plan does. That proposal would phase in at 30% beginning with the first dollar of income earned. So even if you only had a very small amount of income, you could get some credit. Okay. And one thing I think is cool is that it would also index the maximum amount of the credit to inflation each year, which not all proposals do. Interesting. I mean, it makes sense. Yes. Costs go up over time. However, that also means that the cost of the program to the government goes up over time. You alluded to it a little bit, but, um, you know, it does seem that work or income requirements are, uh, I'm going to say a a sticking point, a potential sticking point for for any sort of agreement in Congress right now. It does seem like that. And we've heard some people from public accounting firms talk about it. And this does seem to be the the sticking point. Um, If the credit phases in immediately, as it did under the American Rescue Plan, that means families can benefit even if they don't work, even if they have no earned income. 
And mm-hmm. as the phase in income level increases, that means fewer families will qualify. And those that don't qualify are arguably the ones most in need because, you know, they don't have any income. Yeah. And so we were wondering what the research tells us about, you know, the right design here. Um, there's a study by Corinth, Myers, Stadnicki, and Wu that estimates that removing the work requirement associated with the child tax credit would lead to an estimated 1.5 million workers to exit the labor force. That is 2.6% of all working parents. Yes. If that were to happen, then instead of the expanded credit reducing child poverty by 34%, it would reduce it by only 22% because now you have a bunch of parents not working. Yep and not earning. Now, however, the study we mentioned earlier out of UC Irvine estimates that recipients of the expanded child tax credit monthly payments under the American Rescue Plan don't significantly leave the workforce at a different rate. Okay, good. I thought I remembered that from that study. So yeah, so uh, you know, in a nutshell, (laughs) the evidence is mixed. Uh, Yeah. Classic case, right? We've got two different sets of researchers using two pretty different methodologies to figure out what might happen and they're coming up with different results. And different settings. I mean, the American Rescue Plan was during a pandemic and there were a lot of things going on, but kind of nice to know that it's not necessarily the case that people are just going to give up on working because, you know, working gives you money that helps pay the bills. And I'm glad you raised that point because the 2022 Consumer Spending Survey from the Bureau of Labor Statistics reports that the average household with 2.4 adults and 0.6 children, so not even a full child, okay, spends $9,300 a year on food alone. Mm. Now that's average across all households. If we look at households with income below 15,000, they still spend over $5,000 a year on food and that's with less than one child. So it's not totally clear to me how getting a $3,000 credit from the government is gonna be like, oh yeah, I'm on easy street now. I can just quit my job. Okay, I wanna go back to a point that you've made a couple of times here, which is how does one get less than one child? Cause that is parenting I might be able to get behind. <laughs> statistics, man, statistics. Damn it. Time for the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I will say, I think a good thing here is that we got to revisit the child tax credit, which you and I both think is a pretty important policy. Even though I stand to benefit from it, not at all. I still think it's important. No, every dollar I get is just dollar less I ask you for that you know for raising a child. So you know, it's uh, it, it's it's keeping you, you off the 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 what child support rolls. Okay, I I strongly support. <laughs> revising and re-implementing the child tax credit uh, it's, selfish, selfishly now. Yes. Um, another good is that for me, at least I got caught up on the treatment of R&D and it kept me from looking like a total fool in front of my class. It's hard for me to imagine you looking like a total fool, especially when you give them mama stom face and just ask them the question that you don't know the answer to exactly. and then act, act like you can't believe they don't know the answer. Uh, true. My initials are BS, but it, it, I am, I, you know, it, it kind of fits. I can, I very, very, very uh, rare that I get totally stomped in situations. So. All right. So moving on to the bad here, um, we have several bills. I think we said several yes. proposals. Yep. At least four here, at least four um, across two different provisions, R and D and child tax credit. And they have at least some level of bipartisan support, which is like the unicorn in today's uh, age of Congress. And we still can't get them passed. What gives? 
Yeah. So we're just going to go right to the ugly, which is, which is politics, right? So yes, we can all agree seemingly that uh, having three you know million kids in poverty is not a great answer. And mm. we know of a policy tool that can help get them out of poverty, but we just like, we can't ag- either, we can't agree on the details to make it happen, or we're more interested in furthering our own pet projects or appeasing our base than actually addressing the issue at hand. And on that note of, you know, furthering selfish projects and just appeasing our base, that's how we got to where we are with the R&D expensing. Excellent right? point. Because yeah. we couldn't pass the Tax Cuts and Jobs yep. Act without making it revenue neutral. And so we had to, we had to find revenue raisers somewhere. It's not that changing this was like, quote unquote, good policy. It's not like this was data driven and there are studies saying that we should spread this benefit out over time. No, it's that we couldn't get the Democrats and independents on board with other provisions. And so they had to pay for it themselves. And this is what they came up with. You're absolutely right. And oftentimes my students will ask me like, why is that rule there? What happened? And the place that you can typically go to find that is the House committee report, right? So the House, the bill originates in the House and the House usually explains the provisions. So you and I have research around another part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act where Congress limited the deductibility of executive compensation. There's a whole paragraph about why they felt they needed to do that and like the Mm -hmm. motivation and the rationale. When you go look up this, there's there's nothing there. Like there's there's (laughs) not that paragraph like of rationale for change literally doesn't exist. I'm not surprised. And, you know, if we're upset enough about R&D and innovation and leaving businesses out in the cold, it's even worse that we're willing to leave 9 million kids out in the cold in poverty because we can't agree on whether you should work or not, or if you work, how much you should work or what the max credit should be, or if it should be indexed to inflation. Like, let's just do something better than what we had before the TCJA. Preach. And the question I have for you is, okay, let's say that one study is correct and 2.6% of working parents stop working as a result of the expanded child tax credit. I just, I kind of have to ask, like, who who cares? I mean, the argument is that we're replacing the need for adults to go make their own living, right? We're, we're, giving, we're giving them handouts and they would be productive members of society without those handouts. I guess where that argument tends to fall apart, in my opinion, is that we don't, like a, a lot of these um, proposals are targeted at kids under the age of six. Who's looking after those kids, yes. right? Like are, these low income families, it, it, it's, it's not a, a nice trade off to have to make. Do I go work or do I look after my kid? 100%. And you and I did not discuss this ex ante, but I was reading a, you know, a Republican uh, talking point on this. And it was like about the importance of work and work and work and work. And nowhere in there is about the importance of spending time with your kids. Mm. And it it makes me wonder, maybe the stat is out there, I don't know, but what percentage of our U.S. Congress are single income families? Yeah. That would be interesting to know. Very much so. Well, that's all we have time for today. Be sure to join us for more tax nerdery on future episodes of Taxes for the Masses. 